Well, church, as our eight to tens head to uh, age-appropriate teaching, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 and 4 is where we will be today as we are in a 15-week series, and this is week 2. And the series is going over the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, basically where it all began. And so I invite you to look at Genesis chapter 3 and 4 with me, two scenes that uh, we're going to look at today. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you and underscore the fall festival that's coming up. Such a privilege to be together, serve together, laugh together, dunk multiple pastors in a dunking booth. Uh, There's just a lot of joy to be had. So we invite you to come and participate, to volunteer if you haven't already, and invite your friends, neighbors, to come out this Saturday between 3 and 5 at our church property, 3101 Rock Quarry Road. We would love to see you there. Looking forward to it and Uh, Praying that the Lord would move in unity and in joy and peace and in salvation. But now let's look. We're going to read just a few verses to kind of get the lay of the land. I'm not going to read all of chapters 3 and 4 at the beginning here. But where I would like to begin is Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Then I'll read verse 21, and that's scene 1. Then in scene 2, we run to Cain and Abel, Genesis 4. 8 and verse 13. It should be on the screen so you don't get too lost as we dive in. I'm going to read then pray. The word of God says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then in Genesis 3.21, we see the remarkable goodness of God. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife, who we know as Eve, garments of skins, and clothed them. Scene two, with Cain and Abel, children of Adam and Eve, Genesis 4 verse 8 says this, Cain spoke to Abel his brother. When they were in a field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. In verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And then a little bit later in verse 15, he says, And the Lord put a mark or a sign on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, we want to stop. Acknowledge your presence. We want to say, Lord, have our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see you, to know you. And as we begin to know our hearts even better, may we in desperation call out to you, the living God, 
to change us and reorient us and protect us. Make us new. Give us a trust in you and a love for you and a love for our neighbor. Please, Father, we ask that you would make more and more of our moments trusting moments, abiding moments. Would you fill us up right now, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever gone to a restaurant and when you sat down for the main dish, the main dish was remarkable. But then you have to pick sides, right? And sometimes you don't know about the sides. And so then you go to a side thinking, hey, maybe this will be as good as what I just went after. And the side is just like, yikes, it's a letdown. It's just like, I don't want that. And so usually what you do is you quickly run back to the main course to try to compensate for that moment that was really a a, a fail. And it's interesting how not only was it good in round one, but when it was contrasted with the bitterness or the, the mess of the side, all of a sudden it leaps off the page. Maybe even better. I found a similar experience when we went to Colorado, not with food, but with Colorado Hot Springs. I did not know this existed fully, but when we went to Colorado, there were hot springs. The higher you went in elevation, the hotter the water was. It was really bizarre, but it was all natural. And so you would go, and you could go in these hot springs, and it was like kind of being in this massive natural hot tub, so to speak. But they also had this section of the hot springs. No exaggeration. I took one step and it was like hot tub warm. And I took a second step and it was like ice water. Bizarre. It was so crazy. Now the thing you were supposed to do is this. You were supposed to jump into the cold water and then get out of the cold water and go back in the hot water. And it was supposed to be like, the primo experience. For me, I touched that cold water with the tip of my toe and I was like, hey, I'm good with what I've experienced. I'm loving what I got right here. It's warm and it's good. But why in the world would would that be a thing? Because contrast is meant to be a teacher. It's meant to be a teacher that not only did you have something good, but when you know that there's something bad, when you run back to what is good, it can be even better. It can be seen as even more amazing. And here in Genesis 3 and 4, we are encouraged to learn by contrast. As Genesis 1 to 4 sets the stage for the entire Bible, what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is the remarkable goodness of God. His great love. His blessing of creation. And especially his love for humanity as he gives his very image to them. And encourages them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He gives them all the food that they need so that they can be fully satisfied. Fully satisfied in his provision. But now what we dive into, in Genesis 3 and 4, is are two scenes where there is nothing more destructive, misery-creating, and gross than the distrusting, wayward desires 
and disordered loves of the human heart. It's what we see in Adam and Eve's choices, what we see in Cain over Abel. But in the midst of all of that darkness and grossness, nothing pulls back the curtain of God's goodness like when you see Him not totally obliterate us, but still step towards us and pursue us with acts of mercy and kindness and promises of deliverance. This is what we will see. I've summarized it into three main points. The goodness of God as love, the distrusting hearts of disordered loves, and trusting and enjoying the goodness of God. The flow is intentional that the goodness of God is like the bookends around our destroying and wrecking of the human world or of the condition of the planet. And our hearts filled with distrust and disordered loves. This message is meant to say, our God can be trusted. And let's turn from sin to Him. Let's look. The goodness of God as love. The question I want to begin with now is, who is God foundational? Who is God foundationally? Why do I ask the question? Well, if you start in Genesis 1-1, you hear this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's called a merism. Everything you can see up, everything you can see down, He's created everything. So, you might think, God is fundamentally Creator. Now, if God is fundamentally and foundationally creator, then we have a problem. Because then he is needy of his creation to give him his identity. And therefore, if he is fundamentally creator, then he is lacking something and he created us because he was lacking something and needed something to create his identity. Not our God. As you continue on in Genesis, he gives a command. You can eat of every tree in the garden, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad or good and evil. You might then look at him and say, well, God is fundamentally a sovereign, a king, one who gives rules and commands. And he is creator and he is sovereign king, ruler who gives command. But if he was fundamentally a rule giver, then that means his identity would be dependent upon us obeying his rules. And we have a deeper problem. Michael Reeves, in my favorite book that I read over sabbatical, Delighting in the Trinity, totally changed how I personally and corporately worship and view God. He said, the problem is, is that we would be tempted then if God was foundationally ruler and king and sovereign, we would be tempted to view him like a traffic cop. Forgive me, all cops. We love you. Now, how do you treat a traffic cop? If you get caught for speeding, then he gives you a punishment, right? And you feel kind of bad. If you get away with it, or you outrun them like in this mad car chase or something. You know, it's epic on TV. If you get away with it, then you might feel relief. But the one thing you will not feel is love. When he punishes you, you don't feel, thanks for loving me. When you get away with something, you feel relief. You don't feel, I love that cop. 
That's not what you feel. And yet Jesus said, I'm going to summarize the entire Old Testament with two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. We have a problem. If we see God foundationally as creator or foundationally as ruler, instead, Jesus tells us how we should view our God. In John chapter 17, verse 24, he says this, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. John 17, 24, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. That means there's something happening before the world was created. And here's what it is. Jesus as Son speaks to two things. God is Father, and God is love. God is Father, and God is love. Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. This is deeply profound. There are mysteries going on here that I will not have time to explore. But what we need to see is our God is foundationally Father, fundamentally love. The uncaused God of the universe is, by His very nature, love. And that means the Scriptures from beginning to end are filled with the brush strokes of His love. When He created, it was an overflow of His love for His Son onto creation. And everything that He was created was done in love. When He gives a command, everything that He does as a sovereign King is also as a tender, loving Father. Everything that He does has His fingerprints of love on it. And therefore, when you look at Genesis, what you see is not God as cold, not God as stingy, not God as dependent, but one who is independent, the giver of life, the one deeply infatuated with His Son and so filled with love that He overflows and that's why we are here. Our God is a giver of life who overflows. And when He says then, you are made in My image, it means that we were built to love. We're built to love. If we are reflecting this God, we are built to love. And that's why 1 John 4, 7 says this. Loved ones, that's what we are called by God. Loved ones, let us love one another because love is from who? From God, our Father. And in the same chapter, a few verses later, verse 19, it says we love because what? He first loved us. Our God is love. Well, if that's the case, what in the world happened? You've got God as Father, supreme over all things, overflowing in love for His creation, and yet we experience in the here and now brokenness. Instead of people loving, they seek revenge. Instead of freedom, there's fear. Instead of generosity, there is greed. Instead of a Godward bent, there's a self-preferential, self-referential, self-obsessed heart. What happened? That's where we go in Genesis 3 and 4. What happened is we distrusted God. 
We distrusted Him. We trusted ourselves. And instead of loving upward and outward, our love turned inward. Our love got disordered. And so what is our sin? Our sin. Distrusting hearts of disordered loves. Now when we look at Genesis chapter 3, we discover a few things. We discover what sin is, and we discover some warning signs that we are starting to flirt with sin, we are starting to justify sin, that we're starting to run down the path of distrusting God. Genesis chapter 3, the first time we hear that there might be something like sin happening is when he says, when God says, you can eat of all the trees in the garden, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. All of a sudden, there's a category that there's something in antithesis to good, evil, bad. And then we read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, when God is speaking to Cain, you hear these words. First time the word sin is used, we read this. And you do not do well. It's speaking of Cain's heart. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. It's against you. It's not for you. But you are to rule over it. And we know from the story, it rules him. Here, sin is compared to like a crouching animal. Aggressive. A striking picture of the choice that's before us. And we're told that it has to do with our desires. Not simply outward actions, but what's going on in the heart. So this is why we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, the verse that I read for us at the beginning, we read these words in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight, you hear the desire language there, to the eyes, I saw it. And I wanted it. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. I not only want the fruit, but I want what it will give me. Wisdom. She took and she ate of the fruit. And she also influenced, gave to her husband. He was passive, sitting by the side. Instead of trying to stop this, he participated in it and he ate. The problem was deeper than eating fruit. And the problem was deeper than the husband not warning or leading well and him eating the fruit. The eating of the fruit was an expression of the evil desires to have food and worldly wisdom more than God. At its core, it was, I trust myself more than I trust you, God. It's thinking that God is somehow stingy. He's not being generous. He's lacking. He's not abundant. He's withholding good. What he said isn't true. But at the end of the day, we distrust thinking we know better. Michael Reeves goes on with the backdrop of the Father as love and us made in His image to love outward and upward. Michael Reeves helps us understand sin. The quote is this. What then went wrong? It was not that Adam and Eve stopped loving. They were created as lovers in the image of God. And that could 
And they could not undo that. Instead, their love turned. When the Apostle Paul writes of sinners, he describes them as lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, 2 Timothy 3, 2-4. Lovers we remain, but twisted. Our love misdirected and perverted. Created to love God, we turn to love ourselves and anything but God. And this is just what we see in the original sin of Adam and Eve. Eve takes and eats the forbidden fruit because of a love for herself and gaining wisdom for herself. That has overcome any love she might have had for God. Sin is a distrusting heart filled with disordered loves. How do we know? How do we know that we are participating in sin? How do we know that we're kind of flirting with it, ready to, to break God's commands, rather ready to reject His love and choose our own path? Well, I think we see a few warning signs here as we dive into Genesis 3 in a little more detail. It says this, chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent, who we're told in the book of Revelation, is Satan. Now the serpent... He was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say? Warning sign number one. God's word is questioned. How do we know that we're tempting to justify sin? That we're tempting to flirt with sin? Number one is that God's word is questioned. The devil goes on to say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. That's totally not what God said. What did God say? He actually said you can eat from every tree in the garden. And in Hebrew, it's fascinating. He goes on to say, he says, you can eat eat from every tree. It's a double verb. That's how you, you get in your translation, you can surely eat. Well, in Hebrew, it's you can eat, eat. Like, he's serious about this. Like, go enjoy. Go eat. And that includes the tree of life. The tree of life was not a reward for them doing good. The tree of life was a gift, undeserved and unearned. And they could eat of it. The only thing they could not do was to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of that, you will actually, in Hebrew, you will die, die. You will surely die. So eat, eat. But if you do this, you're going to die, die. And you see what the devil did. He totally wanted to eclipse the goodness of God and act as if, when that does that, my watch, it likes to talk. And instead what he did was he tried to get you to play on his playground. He's a bully. And he wanted you to get on his playground by changing the terms. Questioning God's word. And what does the woman do in verse 2? She entertains the evil. She entertains it. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she's like, no, you're wrong. But this is what the devil does. He just lures you in. So she start talking to him. But God said, 
You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. What I mean by entertaining evil is that you are listening and talking with yourself or with the devil or flirting with a fantasy and not running immediately into the presence of God when temptation comes. In the same verse as what we see, warning sign three, is that we then begin to twist God's words. Eve added in these verses, neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that. Neither shall you touch it. And this is what happens. We twist things. I have sat in rooms where people will add things to God's Word and seek to bind themselves and bind others to it in this form of legalism and crush a soul. And I've also sat with people who will take away from God's Word and say, that's not bad, that's not what He said. And you'll show them like five or so verses where this is not healthy for you, it's going to destroy your life. And they still just kind of move on like it's not even there. When you flirt with sin, you twist God's words. Adding to or taking away. I'm guilty like you are. But there's a fourth warning, son. We entertain and listen to and believe lies. The devil is called the father of lies, and we see it right here, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, die. You will not surely die. For God knows what? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. God's lying to you. He's withholding good from you. That's what the devil is saying. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And do you see? Your eyes will be opened. Their eyes actually will be opened. There's just a sliver of enough truth to make it palatable, but also to hook you. So without an anchor deep in God's Word, church, without a growing communion with God, being in His presence, we are susceptible to lies. They are from the devil, the father of lies. And the striking thing to notice in our own hearts is that God was talked about, but God was not talked to. That's what sin does. God gets talked about. He becomes a subject to study. He becomes one that you discuss, but He is not who He says He is in your heart, in your mind. You don't enjoy Him as Father. One who's with you. You don't talk to Him. The way you fight sin is when that temptation comes, you take the grossest of thoughts the most deplorable of attitudes, the worst phrases that have ever come out of your mouth, and you don't try to fix them up yourself because if you do, you will end up right here where Adam and Eve are. You will destroy your life and others. Instead, in all of your mess, in all of your muck, in all of your trash, in all of your mess, you run to the Lord who says, I want you. And I've given my son so that there's an answer for your sin. What we see as we continue to go on, warning sign five, is that they just go after what is wise in their own eyes. You look at the world, this seems wise to me, I'm just going to run after it. Rather than running to the Lord, rather than talking to the Lord, 
We talk about him, and then we run after what we think is wise. And so we read in verse 6 again, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, you watch her love turn inward, and desire gives birth to sin. She takes the fruit and eats. And she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Notice how hyper-focused the woman is on what she does not have rather than what she does. In all of our sin, the thread of discontentment is running wild. It laces our sin. And from this point forward, not only does every human choose to sin, but every human is a sinner by nature. It's passed down from our parents, Adam and Eve. This is what Romans 5, 1 says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, look who gets credit for the sin. Look who gets named. It's the one who is supposed to warn, who is supposed to lead, who is supposed to care, who is supposed to shepherd with gentleness, and he was absent in those roles. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. What did they do? They did what was wise in their own eyes. And we see the devastating effects of sin. Before we run into the devastating effects, we just have to state, it is impossible to overstate the devastation of this moment. Impossible. Sin is so deep in us, so deep in us, it is ruining us in 10,000 ways that we don't understand. It dampens our thinking. It clouds our judgment. It eclipses our vision. It sickens our heart. It corrupts our loves. It poisons our affections. It makes us vomit what is good and cling to what is destructive. It is like feasting on feces and calling good what is deplorable. We must be repulsed, convinced of its insidious, corruptible, revolting effects on our lives before we will actually say, a death is needed in my heart. We've got to be sick of it. It's not like a little crumb on the shoulder you can just kind of sweep away. It is a deep, fibrous root, A.W. Tozer says. It is deep within us. It is stuck on our tissue. We need a death. It's not something you can just play with to try to remove it. When you see that a death is needed through tears, you fall helplessly at the foot of the cross and you say, God, help me. I can't deal with this anymore. That's the invitation. The invitation when the weight is too heavy, the corruption too deep, the pain too much, all we can do is come and fall. You have nothing to bring anymore. You can't rip it out yourself. You need another for healing to occur. And friends, I was struck. Literally, I'm working on this. I'm studying. I have studied so much for this passage. And then I was just struck. We've got to be careful. 
we don't just need information right now. You don't need good facts about the Hebrew underneath Genesis 3-4. to You don't need to know some really neat creative thing from the text to say, look at what I know about the text. A.W. Tozer says this, Trying to instruct sin out of your heart is like trying to instruct leprosy out of your body. It does not work. We don't need more information. We need more communion. We need God Himself. We need time with Him in His presence where we are helpless and pleading and saying, Oh God, please, uproot this mess in me. Expose it and rip it out. Friends, this isn't theoretical. This isn't simply historical, and yet it is historical. It is biographical. It's your story. It's my story. And as I pondered Adam and Eve, God brought to mind that precious hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and I thought, that's me. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So right now, don't allow this to become information transfer. Sit in His presence. Jesus is right here. Lean into Him. Cry out to Him in your heart. Church, we cannot flirt with sin anymore. Don't entertain its destructive devices. Don't justify your anger, your lust, our lies, our greed, our judgmentalness, our bitterness, our self-righteousness, our self-obsession, our self-referential worldview, sing a new song. A song that says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, but take my heart, Lord, and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Take me. That's the prayer of one who knows Their need is the presence of God. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. One of the prayers that has been regular coming out of sabbatical has been Psalm 73. I encourage you, if you don't have something to memorize right now, you look at Psalm 73. Psalm 73 says this. This has been my prayer so much this week. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my life and my portion forever. You are the enoughness. You are the one who will satisfy. And it's a prayer. Oh, Father, may nothing I desire rival you. May nothing be simultaneous with you. May nothing be on par with you. May you be supreme in my heart's affections. May you be my portion. And so in the text, we see our great God who loves us, but who also promises there are devastating effects from sin. If you read verse 7 in chapter 3, he says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They tried with their own strength to cover themselves up because... What they were trying to cover was guilt and shame. And then verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool 
of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Besides the death of Jesus, probably the saddest words in all of Scripture. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. You felt that before. So embarrassed of how you acted, the words you said. You want to hide. You've seen it in the kids. When your kids put their head underneath the covers after they know they've been found guilty. It's hard-grained in us all. What do we do with guilt and shame? Let's try to cover it ourselves. Let's cover up, and it doesn't solve it. Devastating. The only thing that can solve the shame and guilt is the covering of another. Jesus Christ, dying in our place, promising that if you come to Him, confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive and to wash you clean of all unrighteousness. His presence is what we need. His presence is what they ran from. Devastating effects of sin. And then you just run through. You run through this list. I don't have time to go through everything. God asked them questions. Not that God needed answers, but He wanted them to confess. He wanted them to out loud, they did something wrong. And instead, what did they out loud? <laughs> they out louded that somebody else was the problem. It's the devastating effects of sin. The man said the woman did it. Well, she did. God says, woman, what in the world did you do? And he, she said, serpent deceived me. And serpent, what in the world are you doing? God curses the serpent. Creates a hatred between the devil, serpent, and woman and her children. Then the peace of Adam and Eve's relationship is destroyed. It's disrupted. It says that women will be tempted to live contrary to the good of their husband, and the husbands will be tempted to lead not with gentleness, but with dominance. Just destroys this peaceful friendship. Woman's childbirth will be excruciating, and the man's work, because the ground has been cursed, will be in continual pain. And then he says, from the dust you came and to the dust you return, all will die. And then you hear Genesis 3.22, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then the sentence drops off. He doesn't finish the sentence. It's a rhetorical written literary device that says, It was so urgent. Because the tree of life was going to continue on their present state. Before it was continuing on the loving presence of God where sin was nowhere around. But now sin had corrupted their present state. To eat of it, they would be in forever death. And so what happens is He banishes them from the garden. An act of mercy. He sent them out. The picture is bleak and it gets worse in Genesis 4. 
Adam and Eve have children, Cain and Abel. They bring an offering, a sacrifice. God says that he accepts Abel's and not Cain's. Why? Because it becomes really clear that Cain's heart is evil and for himself, and Abel's was one of faith. God accepted Abel's and not Cain's, and that made Cain mad. Mad anger is the fruit of a self-referential heart. And then we read this in Genesis 4, verse 8. And following. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. The devastating effects of sin. Rather than being for someone else, you're jealous. You're sad when someone is happy, and you're happy when someone is sad. This disposition of God is being stingy to me. He's withholding something good from me. It resulted here in the taking of Abel's life. And then you see the mirror pictures. What does God do after Abel, after Cain has sinned? God comes to him and asks questions again, right? Because he wants Cain to confess. And you see the arrogance in Cain's answer. The Lord said to Cain in verse 9, Where is Abel your brother? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Not my job. And the Lord said, What have you done? And then some fascinating words. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You can't see this in English, but in Hebrew, it's your brother's blood. The word is dam, is crying out from the adama, the adama. Adam, Adam, so what should have had blood in it has now got blood spilled from it on the ground. And it's crying out, this is not how it's supposed to be. It's broken. Sin is destructive. It's evil. It's gross. We've gotten so desensitized because you can turn on the TV and watch it at any moment in these shows. But when blood is on the ground, it's meant to disturb you. Because blood is meant to be inside. Life. And it's a picture that sin has come. And so he goes on in verse 11, And now you are cursed from the Adama, the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wonder. He's going to be nomadic. He's not going to have a home. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great. I can't bear it. Have you ever felt that way? He said, I can't bear it. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I'm going to be a wonder and a fugitive from the earth, and whoever finds me is going to kill me. That's the other thing that sin does. It makes you afraid. When you're supposed to be in peace, you walk in fear. It evokes hiding and shame, burdens too heavy to bear. And yet, look at verse 15 of chapter 4. The Lord comes in and He speaks and He says, Not so, Cain. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord puts a sign, a mark, a sign on Cain that says, basically, I'm going to protect you. 
lest any who found him should attack him. The sign was meant to be a deterrent so that he would not die. It's an invitation for Cain to trust the goodness of God amidst the grossness of his sin. Run into the presence of God with your sin. Trust and enjoy the goodness of God. Do you see? We chose to step in the freezing waters and to stay there. God says, get out and come to the warm hot springs of my love. Come, be in this. Cain rejected it. But God's love is still there present, inviting you to come. That's why when you hit rewind in Genesis 3.15, you hear of God's love. When he says, I will put hatred, when he's talking to the serpent, I'll put hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is saying, I will provide a deliverer who will be struck on the heel, but who will ultimately render the defeat of the devil by striking his head. Genesis 3.21 and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. In their nakedness, in their shame, God pursued them in his goodness and love. And he clothed them. Jen Wilkins says that his provision for their nakedness is the first time that an innocent life is taken for the guilty. Do you see that? An innocent animal's life taken to cover the guilty. And this just begins what we see all throughout the Scriptures. So many words, themes, concepts, images are threads that run all the way through the Bible that were you to pull on them, it brings everything together to see that God keeps His Word. He can be trusted and He invites you in the midst of all of your sin to trust in Christ who fulfills it all who paid for it all so that you might be with Him forever and ever. Friends, we need, we need the love of God to cover our sin. I was struck with the last line here and I'm going to pull on a thread for you as we conclude. Do you know what Cain did? When God invited him and said, I'm going to protect you by putting a sign on you. Do you know what he did? He left the presence of the Lord and he built a city. The word built there is the same word that's used for what God did when he gave Eve to Adam. So there was a problem, if you remember. Adam couldn't be fruitful and multiply without a perfect complement. God builds the perfect complement. But now the next time that we see build, Cain is not trusting God as his protector. He's building a city. A city by definition in Hebrew is, is walling up to keep inhabitants in. And the next time you see the word city, it's mentioned of Nineveh and Assyria. It's mentioned of Babylon and Babel. What happened in Genesis 11? The Tower of Babel in the middle was tried to be erected. And what were they trying to do? To show and make a name for themselves rather than a name for God. Cities over and over became a place 
of destruction and a place of rebellion like Sodom and Gomorrah all throughout the Scriptures until you come to Jerusalem. And it was going to be a place where heaven and earth meet, the city of David, where the presence of God was going to be with God's people. And yet, in just a few generations, Jerusalem is compared to Babylon because the people of Jerusalem were found to be rebellious and against God Himself. And so what happens is, He takes the city of Babylon and He removes Jerusalem, the people from Jerusalem, and crushes it. So what's the answer? Jesus comes. He comes to Jerusalem, bringing the message that He is the Messiah. And what does Jerusalem do one more time? They reject Him. They reject Him. But He says, My people are going to be a city on a hill. And they're going to shine as a light to the nations. Jesus says, What we're longing for is a new heavenly Jerusalem. We're longing for a city, a city to come where there will be no more tears and no more rebellion. This is what we read in Revelation chapter 3. It says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. I am coming soon. He says, verse 12, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out. I'll write my name on him. The name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. God is writing his name on us. We are the new Jerusalem. And so when you read in Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. Where did we hear that language? Genesis 1. I saw a new heavens and a new earth, and a city is coming down. And what we celebrate is, God is with His people. Now, is this just a future reality? This is what is mind-blowing to me. What is mind-blowing? It's found in Hebrews 12, and I end with this verse. It brings everything together, and you might be like, why in the world did he just go there? Stay with me. It says in verse 12 of chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 22, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion. He's talking to a church. You've got a picture. It's a church. They're in a house. They're worshiping God. They're in this house worshiping. And he is saying to this church, You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And what is happening is he is saying, Their corporate worship gathering, just like what we're doing right now. It's like a portal that is rushing them into the presence of the living God amidst the innumerable angels and all the saints who have died and trusted in Jesus. They are experiencing, while they're in the house singing, while they're listening to God's Word, while they're taking the Lord's Supper, they are in the presence of the living God, angels around singing. Those who have died are singing and worshiping and you are in the presence of Jesus, who is our lead worshiper. And it says, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How can we worship week in and week out? How are we transported, spiritually speaking, into the presence of God right now With Him, worshiping Him, with Him. 
you get the picture. The picture is Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Where Abel's blood was crying out, this is not what it's supposed to be, Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Abel's blood diagnosed the problem. Jesus' blood cries out with the solution. His blood cries out and says, it is finished. Justice has been served. The horrors of sin have been paid for. Trust in me. Let me wash you with my blood. You deserved nothing. And you've received everything. His blood speaks a better word. Your sins have been paid for. Trust me. I will give you rest. Be yoked to me. Follow me. I love you. Don't resist me. And this is an invitation. An invitation so that we can experience on that last day the new Jerusalem, the presence of the living God in all of its glory that we would say, I need the blood of Jesus to cover my sin. And we don't talk about God, we talk to Him. We don't flirt with sin. We run into His presence and we plead for forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, where Genesis 3 and 4 paint this picture of destruction and distrusting hearts and disoriented loves and the devastating effects of sin. Thank you for the broad brushstrokes found even in these chapters of your fatherly love, your constant provision and protection. Thank you for your goodness. Father, I ask that we would Enjoy your goodness. We would trust you. We would hate sin. And we would run to you. And so right now, before we take the Lord's Supper and sing a closing song, run to Him. Stop hiding. Stop trying to cover your own shame. Some of you have never confessed your sin to the Lord and you need the blood of Jesus. The one who died in your place and rose from the grave to say He is the victor. He is able to change the human heart. Would you give your heart to Him for the first time? Would you confess your sin to Him and confess that He is your only Savior? For others of you, you've been trying to hide, trying to fix. Or you might just be flirting with sin. Bring it to Him. Run into His presence and receive the words that His blood says over you. I love you. I'm faithful. I can make you clean. And make you new. Let's take a few seconds here to be still. And then we will take the Lord's Supper together.